Hello, Rackboy.com podcast listeners. This is Jonathan Stringer here, and I'm with uh, Bill Sternberg of Z-Boyd Games. Uh, we agreed to meet up here in Houston. He's a, we, we both live in the same area and uh, tried to find a local coffee house or a place to go, but with the Christmas craze of shopping and all, everything is too crowded and noisy. So I'm actually here in his uh, office and uh, gaming studio. <laughs> so, uh, hello, Bill. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. And uh, kind of give us an intro. How, how did you get all into gaming, and, uh, and who is and what is Z-Boyd Games? Okay, well, how did I get into gaming personally? Oh, man, just, I don't know. I think the first game I played was Pac-Man at some random, like, restaurant. But I really, the first game console I ever had that got me into it was the original NES. First game was Super Mario Brothers, of course. <laughs> and I still remember, like, trying to figure out, you know, what button does what, and looking up and then back down at the screen and my hands. So, uh, no, it's ever since then I've been addicted to the to this industry, and not just video games, but following developers and and what's going on in the industry and everything else. And that extreme interest into the the goings on of the industry is part of the reason why I've always been um, stuck with. It's always stuck with me, making games, making mods, learning how to program, learning how to do art, and putting it together. And so, in uh, when actually when I went to law school, I did a little free remake of an Atari 2600 game called Adventure, just for the hell of it. And shortly around that time, uh, my now business partner, Robert, was getting into the XNA, Xbox Live Indie Games thing. Mm -hmm. So we decided to, hey, why don't we work together and make an actual RPG, release it on Xbox Live Indie Games. And that's when we came together to form Z-Boyd. Okay. And uh, what is your personal responsibility at Z-Boyd? What do you do? So my primary responsibility is building the art and the game assets. Okay. So it's obviously it's anything that's a sprite or a graphic, but it's also building the game world. Mm -hmm. And when I say the game world, I mean literally everything that you see and do, uh, the, everything, everything you interact with and see. So all the, all the maps, all the sprites and characters, all the effects, uh, all the U, all the UI graphics and everything like that. I basically put the organs into the skeleton that Robert writes with code. Okay, so he's the he's the more of the programmer. You're more of the the artistic designer than is probably the best way to say. Yeah, it. and then I I say I build the world because I it's fun and it's the most fun part is building literally the overworld. It's this giant geographical thing with these different regions, and then you go in closer and you can build. Not just the towns, but the forests and the mountains and the uh, the actual dungeons and stuff like that. So, so you said you're you went to law school and you're an attorney. So how how do you go from doing that to becoming an indie game designer? Oh, okay, man. <laughs> so I know it's weird, but I've actually met other lawyers that that uh, really? that are game developers, like uh, Craig Stern, uh, who okay. uh, does uh, Telepath Tactics. So okay, yeah, yeah, he was also at PAX. Um, anyway, ah, well, like I said, I've always been super interested in in focused on this industry as a hobby mm -hmm. and I've always followed the businesses and like what they've done, what's succeeded and what hasn't just out of sheer interest and sales data and financial results and stuff. It's a weird hobby, I admit, but it's fun to me. So uh, between that and, and just always being eager to learn how to code, I uh, taught myself QBasic in, you know, middle school and did mods for Doom and Duke Nukem 3D and then Quake and so forth. So building stuff and seeing it work in a game has always been a passion. In law school, when, we, when I was in law school, I did it as a hobby, like I said, and then Robert and I released Breath of Death 7. And that did really, really well for an Xbox Live indie game. 
which is to say it wouldn't pay your bills because it's <laughs> Xbox Live Indie Games, yeah. but it did really, really well by comparison. And it was one of the top, it was shifting back and forth between the top one and two rated game for a few, several weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after that, I, I graduated and we started, we were about to finish Cthulhu Saves the World and I was studying for and taking the bar exam. So that was stressful. Yeah. But um, after those two games came out, they did well. Uh, we did another promotion called the Winter Uprising for Xbox Live. Mm-hmm. And then around the time I'd been working as a lawyer for almost a year, we got our deal to release our games on Steam. And so we ported the games to Steam. We uh, finally released it. And let me just say that our most hopeful expectations for sales for the game mm-hmm. for the next like two or three months yeah. were surpassed in the first week. <laughs> so... and. I just I was humbly just blown away by that, yeah. and once we realized that 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 this is actually can be a legitimate business, and we can we can focus on this specific genre with our little unique weird twist on it, we can succeed as a business if we keep it up. And that's when I decided I could do this full time. Wow. So is that a challenge being an indie developer? Do you have uh, months where you know the game's been out for a little bit, and now your sales really start to decline, and it's hard to sustain yourself financially, or is it? Just- pretty solid enough to to where it is a a full-time job that can support you so that depends um on the developer in the game Uh, you know every game sells differently and sells in different ways Mm -hmm. a lot of games arguably most games always have most of their sales are front-loaded or rather there's a huge spike upon release and then it kind of tapers off and then uh, you might see bumps when there's a sale, like a Thanksgiving sale or something, or a price drop, or you released something and a big media outlet picked it up. But the way I look at it, if your initial launch, say the first month, if you have enough sales in that first month, I look at that as kind of, well, this is my salary for the next year or yeah. whatever. So that anything after that is just kind of, it's kind of a bonus rather than something I need to subsist on. Mm-hmm. Because of that, you have to make sure that, <laughs> that you're, you're getting enough money, you know, between that first month hump and then kind of that tail end that you can last for about a year or about as long as you need to make your next game. So uh, for the first two, actually, let's discuss your lineup of games before we keep going. So uh, uh-huh. that was, uh, the first you said was Breath of Dust 7 yeah. and then Call of Cthulhu. Uh, Cthulhu Saves the World. Sorry, sorry Cthulhu Saves the World. Uh, that's right. Um, and then you got with Penny Arcade. It's yeah. Like the sequels? Yeah, Rain Slick 3 and 4. Yep. And then now you're working on Cosmic Star Heroin. Mm-hmm. So, all right, for that. And that's the, the, the current developed Kickstarter game. Yeah. Yep. And um, so w- w- with all those games, and you said uh, the first two you just kind of did it as a hobby of your free time yeah. with uh, Robert. Yep. Right? And then, um, so now since that was a hobby and those games are, now that you're doing it full time, is, is the scope and scale of these games getting gradually bigger, you think? Yeah, they are. And it's it's for two reasons. The one you mentioned is the big one. Now that I'm not working like 80, 90 hour weeks as yeah. a lawyer and doing video game development with two or three hours in the night and the weekends mm-hmm. anymore, I'm doing it full time. That allows me to really not just blow up the size and the scope and detail of the maps and mm-hmm. sprites and characters, but it, it gives me time to learn more. I can actually spend time learning new techniques and tricks and ways yeah. to make things look better, too. The other thing is that uh, 
I guess, actually, I guess those were the two main things. I was going to say, um, the time, it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time and learning, just spending time learning, getting better, honing the craft and being able to be free enough to spend, you know, 10 or 11 months on a game. You can also make it a priority three. now. Yeah. Of, yeah. Before it's okay. I have to do these things first cause it's my living and mm -hmm. then if I have time, I'll get to it. But now it's, that is the priority. So yeah, exactly. Vote more. Yeah. It's understandable. Um, so your upcoming game, Cosmic Star Heroin, uh, there's a Kickstarter game successfully. How much over did you go, guys go? Was it, you get some stretch yeah. goals in? And... Okay, so we set a $100,000 goal, yep. which when we set that, uh, I mean, I that's a very ambitious goal. It's very high. It's not a small number uh, for a Kickstarter. No. Thankfully, uh, we had enough, um, there's enough coverage and we have enough fans, enough people went out and supported it that we were able to, to meet that goal. And we actually passed it by about 32000 Okay. So... We came out at about one hundred thirty-two thousand after the Kickstarter finished. Okay, nice. So, what, so what's the goal of the game? The gameplay? What are you trying to accomplish with this game? For those who don't even know anything about okay. it. Okay. Well, it's a couple of things. It's it's a it's a futuristic sci-fi game, but it also has a heavy spy kind of espionage element, mm -hmm. and I think that's I think that's cool. It's not just another. Um, like space opera type thing like you see in a lot of uh, sci-fi RPGs. It's it's really got as much in this spy sort of uh, espionage, Metal Gear Solid-esque conspiracy stuff going as it does sci-fi. And I think that's really fun because it gives us a chance to get out of the whole swords and shields and forests themes yeah. of many of our other games. Mm -hmm. um, Rain Slick 4 was kind of an exception because we got to do this sort of hellish over hellish under hell slash over hell universe which is taking place in another plane of existence but finally with cosmic star heroin we get to do these other planets with these alien species and advanced technologies and laser beams and stuff and that's really exciting um plus we, we're finally jumping into this whole chrono trigger-esque style of presentation yeah and that's something we've especially me, I've always wanted to do. I, I didn't think three years ago this would be possible for, for us and for me to do from a presentation standpoint, but just being able to do that and have these battles on the maps and having more detail and stuff in the presentation is something I'm super excited about. It, it definitely does have that 16-bit kind of Chrono Trigger look to it, and I assume that's what you're going for then. That's your... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chrono Trigger is obviously a huge inspiration, but um, I'm really just kind of building one on the stuff that I've been doing since Breath of Death. Yeah. Like I'm not trying to make it make it look exactly like a certain genre, a certain game, or a certain era. I mean, yes, it's 16-bit, quote unquote. But really, I'm just taking the kind of stuff that I've been doing since Breath of Death and just kind of layering it on and trying to learn from right. other games done, have yeah. done it. And uh, so, how are you going to get that? So you get the 16-bit. How are you going to implement this uh, stealth or, or spy type of gameplay into the game? Uh, well, there's. I mean, there's a bunch of different ideas that we have. Mm -hmm. Obviously, our main focus is that this is going to be a, a turn-based JRPG-style game, yeah. you know, with battles on the maps and stuff like that. But there's some cool things we want to do. We want to... We're going to have enemies on the maps, for example, and we want to maybe figure out a way to make it so that players that sort of like to dodge enemies mm -hmm. aren't punished by lacking experience when they fight battles later, later on. And since this is sort of an espionage game, that opens up a whole lot of possibilities for, you know, having 
not necessarily stealth like you think of it in like an annoying stealth level in a first-person shooter, but ways to avoid enemies where you can still uh, be rewarded for it right. and not, rather than being punished for it by lacking XP. Yeah. And being kind of a spy, secret agent type character, yeah. there's a lot of cool ways to do that. It seems tough and against the grain because, you know, a lot of these old school style JRPGs, you have to grind your levels and yeah. you, you want to go find enemies to, to, right. to keep it going or... Or try to grind for some kind of rare drop from an enemy mm -hmm. for a special item or anything. So I can see that's a unique challenge you guys are going to face, but it should yeah. maybe offer something fresh to the, uh, to the 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 formula. Yeah, hopefully. And a lot of people do like to grind, and battle systems are a lot big part of the gameplay. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to make it necessarily so that you can just avoid every single battle. There's obviously there's going to need certain battles that you have to fight. So we're going to find a balance there. Okay. And do you have an idea of what the, what kind of story or uh, what kind of uh, challenge the protagonists are going to face? Or yeah, basically the main character is named Alyssa Lasalle, mm -hmm. and she works for a spy agency for for Earth's intergalactic government. Mm -hmm. And what without spoiling anything per se, mm -hmm. she stumbles upon a, a secret that's happening somewhere in the government, and before she can basically take it down they reveal who she is publicly. And they do this because she's made a whole bunch of enemies. <laughs> I mean, she's sabotaged numerous other alien terrorist organizations mm -hmm. and things like that. And now that, she, now that everybody knows who she is, the government can look good by making her out to be this hero while basically letting her enemies track her down to destroy her. So you've got kind of this... Um, this sort of like burn notice-esque element to it on the government side. Yeah. And you've also got this sort of alien, uh, this alien hunter uh, thing on the other side too. So yeah, it should, should open up some cool possibilities. And uh, what about the, what's the status on it? Are you guys, obviously you guys are still very in the early development stages. Mm -hmm. So you have a projected time you, you guys want to, to release this or is this kind yeah. of in the air still? Well, it's still super early into development, yeah. obviously. We, you know, still working on the skeleton of the game. Sure. We're planning on releasing this towards the end of next year, 2014. Okay. So the longest we've ever taken on a game is, I think, 10, maybe 11 months. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't really want to take much longer than that. We've also gotten more efficient at what we do and better at we, what we do. So hopefully we can make this... The game, the bigger, better, more detailed game we want in about a year or a little over a year's time. Okay. And uh, so, why did you guys go with Kickstarter in this after you know? I guess your first four games were either self-funded or yeah, you had someone else help you know yeah. you at all. Or... Well, all of our games up to now have essentially been self-funded. The Penny Arcade ones. Yeah. Okay. Penny Arcade offered us a very generous deal, mm. which essentially they allowed us to make the games that we always did, obviously with working with Jerry Holkins doing the mm. writing and Jeff Callis being a producer to keep things on schedule. But the gist was, instead of paying us a huge amount of money to make the game and be done, they let us make the game how we always do, and then just give us a generous uh, revenue share. Okay. And we had no complaints with that. It was actually incredibly favorable to us. Okay. Um, so we went with Kickstarter with Cosmic Star Heroine because we're we're you know we're going out on our own again, mm -hmm. which is fine. We we enjoy doing that, but we don't want to feel like we're constrained uh, by having to crank a game out in another six to eight months. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to take just a little bit more time and have an incredible budget for audio, 
Music's always been a huge part of our games, and, and Hyperdeck Soundworks is an incredibly talented music team. They did Dust on a Legion Tale and Rain Slip 4 and numerous other stuff. And we really needed the Kickstarter to get them involved. Okay. They're going to help with sound effects. They're going to have this massive, incredibly cool soundtrack. And then the remainder of the Kickstarter is to give us the time that we need to make this game and develop it over the course of a year, maybe a little over a year. And so you mentioned getting a sound person on board, uh, or sorry, the team. Mm-hmm. As you guys possibly get bigger and get more grand and uh, the, the games you make more uh, ambitious, I guess, are you, would, you, would you consider adding like a music guy or more people to help to make these bigger games, or are you content to stay with a duo? Now, we're, st- we're staying as a small two-man team for now, yeah. for the foreseeable future. Uh, mainly, and mainly that's because it's really hard to add people to a small team. Sure. I, I, it's, if, if, you, if, you're not, if you don't think about it, you think, well, you know, if two people can do this, then surely three or four can do that many times more stuff. Well, with a small team, a lot of it boils down, how well you can make a game together boils down in personality and the way you work and the way you schedule and stuff like that. And unless we find somebody who's just incredible and can offer as much value in their skills and what they can bring compared to how much, you know, the revenue has to be split three ways, mm-hmm. until we can find that person, we're sticking with a two-man yeah. team. Sure. And uh, back to Kickstarter a little bit. Were mm-hmm. you at all worried about their this kind of feeling of Kickstarter fatigue now with some of these successful ones? Do you feel like mm-hmm. you maybe missed your window a little bit if you if you would have done it a little sooner? Or mm-hmm. obviously you're still successful, so that was good. But yeah. uh, uh, there's been discussion like mm-hmm. you know, now that oh well, I thought I was like pre-ordering a game. I have to right. wait three years for my game. So right. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a lot of discussion about there being Kickstarter fatigue right now, and I can understand why. I mean, it's getting to a there's. Kickstarter blew up, and there was a lot of numerous big-name projects, and they all got funded really quickly yeah. to, to, to as high degree. And it's easy to get real excited and, and want to support these things without thinking about necessarily how long it's going to take before they come out. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a while for a lot of them. Many of them aren't out yet. Um, the actual uh, issues that crop up in game development are starting to rear their heads, which is not a bad thing per se. It's just how it is. I think most people just didn't realize that before. Right, exactly. And so between that and between the fact that, you know, thousands of studios are kickstarting their projects yeah. now, it, it, it almost seems like surely there has to be some dilution of people willing to still back projects that aren't, you know, haven't decided, well, I haven't backed enough, compared to how many projects are going up every single day. So I think that's a legitimate concern. I think that it's still fine. I think crowdsourcing uh, or funding of games is going to stick around. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that there's this gold rush like certain people act like. It's yeah. not going to, you're not guaranteed to generate millions of dollars like Double Fine did if you just because you throw your game up on Kickstarter. And I think that you can still set a regional, reasonable budget for a game, put up a Kickstarter, make a good pitch, and still come out just fine with happy backers. Yeah, and then another one is I've heard a lot that Oh, okay. I, you know, kickstarted these three, four, five games. I'm gonna wait and see how these do before mm-hmm. I do anymore. Yeah, so I think that's an, another. Maybe think maybe a lot's riding on some of these games being successful. Yeah, and I know one of the big ones, Shadow and Returns, has come out, mm-hmm. and that's actually you know been what, pretty well regarded as a good game. So yeah. hopefully that's a good sign for mm-hmm. Kickstarter uh, in the future. Yeah, and 
a lot of people use uh, faster than light FTL yeah, as an exactly. example of a Kickstarter that went great. Yeah. And there's going to be some stinkers. Like not every game is guaranteed to be a hit with everyone, but I think I think it's going to stick around. I think as long as people want to see stuff be made in a certain way, that it's gonna it's gonna stick around. I just hope that you know there doesn't there isn't this giant massive backlash yeah. you know six months from now but we'll see yeah i like it as well i've done other interviews and, and topics with kickstarter before on the show our listeners are aware but uh it allows people like you and me who have these niche tastes get games mm-hmm. that we still like to play and yeah we don't have to go back necessarily. we get still get new stuff from it we don't have to mm-hmm. only stick to the same you know few games from 20 years ago to scratch that itch so yeah definitely. i think it's uh you can kind of get best of both worlds, but mm-hmm. uh, what are talking about retro stuff? What are some of your retro influences and uh, favorite games? I know you mentioned Chrono Trigger as one, mm-hmm. but oh, okay. For so for RPGs, for me, uh, obviously Chrono Trigger is a big one. Final Fantasy four and six are also big ones. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm like a I'm a big fan of Illusion of Gaia. Yeah. I don't know how many people remember that game. But that's uh, I'm sure I mean, like all of our listeners will. Okay. Will yeah. It's kind of this action RPG. It's a little. It's got this bizarre story. Uh, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's really cool. And it's 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 pretty unique, and you can change forms, and it's kind of Zelda esque, and it has puzzles and the maps and stuff like that. So that's this weird influence on me as well. Um, obviously, uh, Link to the Past is an influence, but in, in the sense that the thing that I like about Link to the Past, the way it did in terms of like visual and presentation, is that it's very simple, but it's so clean and clear, and it conveys exactly everything it needs to without going too far. And I think that's something useful to take from some of these old school games. Um, but as far as gener- generally speaking, a lot of games influence kind of my ideas and the way I do stuff. A lot of NES games, like Ninja Gaiden, that's such a bizarre series on the NES. Just the weirdest crap happens in those games. Yeah, some of the bosses are real weird. Yeah, it, it just the whole story, you end up like, it's almost Contra-esque, these alien yeah. life beings and stuff that you fight in the bosses. And uh, so, and then the cutscenes are really cool. That's a cool inspiration for me and how they, they were able to do so much with so little. And then uh, just a lot of these bizarre shooters I get ideas from. Uh, Gradius is or Gradius, however you say it, just the the, the different sort of futuristic stuff mixed with uh, like biological tech that and R type, and I even used uh, what was it uh, Abadox for the NES oh, really? for inspiration in the final dungeon of Rain Slick Four. Okay, huh. so I don't know. There's tons of weird eight bit, sixteen bit retro uh, inspiration that that I I grabbed from that I grew up with. Yeah, many of you guys will like Bill's room here. He's got a few shelves full of a bunch of retro games from all kinds of different systems. You have, what, about eight, nine systems hooked up on your TV right now? Yeah, that's this room. There's a living room that's got like three or four more. (laughs) So hopefully I'll try to get a few pictures uh, to go with the post so you guys can check it out. But it would fit right along in some of our uh, other uh, four members' uh, rooms and all that. And Virtual Boy over here in the corner. So uh, it's very nice to see someone making the games and living the games and have them all too. So he's... Yeah, he'd be just just right in with everyone on the forum. So, uh, so uh, what what games do you have a, a hard time actually still being able to play and enjoy games while making yours? Do you kind of get burned out, or uh, what games are you playing right now? Oh, okay. Well, as far as burnout or whatever, um, that 
I find myself so busy making games. It's not a joke. Like, making games is a ton of work. It's a tremendous amount of work, especially for two people. And I actually find myself pouring so much time into it the past three or four years that, yeah, I do have limited time between that and family life and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever social life I can still manage. So I only get in a few hours, you know, per week at most. But I still enjoy them. I think... I think when you make games and you see feedback from fans and people that play, and then you go and play other games, yeah. it, you, may, it becomes, you become very aware of how did they guide the player through this map, or what did they use to make it feel a certain way? How did they get the atmosphere to feel this way? Or how did they make it feel open and yet still guide the player from point A to B that they wanted to? Stuff like that. And I'm sure that it's the case for my partner who I've talked to, Robert, and you know, he'll play an RPG now, and all he can think about is, okay, how did they... <laughs> like, why is, why is that so much fun? That sounds like, that's counterintuitive, but, but it's fun in this game, you know? Whether it's difficulty or certain types of encounters and battle setups. So, yeah, you kind of look at it through a different lens, but it's still, they're still incredibly fun. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the two games that I, that I am playing now and, and getting towards finishing are The Last of Us on PS3. Yep. Which is awesome. I mean, everyone like pretty much loves that game. Yeah, we talked about it a few episodes ago. We and my uh -huh. our, our co-hosts both listened to it. Yeah, it's, it. Sorry. it's great. And I'm a fan of stealth games. Mm -hmm. It's it's an action game, but there's stealth elements. Yeah. And I just started playing Dark Souls. So also super popular RPG and well known for its difficulty and blah blah blah. But so far, I'm having fun playing the PC version. I haven't played Dark. I played Demon Souls, but haven't mm -hmm. gotten the Dark Souls yet. It's Mm -hmm. That backlog is uh, daunting. Too. Yeah, yeah, mine too. But, you know, I, I've tried to pick whatever I'm in the mood for. So I just finished playing some RP, I mean, some first-person shooters. So I felt like, all right, try a third-person uh, action game yeah. and then Dark Souls. Well, I see you have a 3DS over there, right? Uh -huh. So you talk about Link to the Past, what you've been playing oh, yeah. in the world as well? No, I don't have a lot of stuff on my Christmas list, so I had to put that on my Christmas <laughs> list so somebody would have something to get for me. So, like, ah, uh, you know, I want to play that right now. But I agreed to be like, okay, well, I'll put off buying that so that, you know, someone can buy that for me. Uh, but I'm, I'm still playing Etrian uh, Odyssey, uh, Millennium Girl, or whatever okay, it's called. Yeah. And, you know, that's a meaty game. There's a lot of dime and hours you can put into that. Mm. So, Do you, have, you feel like it's hard to play these epic RPGs that take, you know, 50, 60 hours, especially you, you like the little bite-sized games now? Or? Yeah, I, it's hard to get through, and I know a lot of RPG fans love 30, 40, 50, yeah. 60 hour games, but when you're so busy making this stuff and, you know, trying to keep up with your family, it does get hard. Yeah. A 40 hour game, which by RPG standards is... Medium. Probably. Yeah, medium. That might take me several months to get through. Yeah. If I play an hour a night, which... Like, I'm happy when I can play one hour each night or skip a night and play two hours on a weekend or something. That'll still take me 40 days. Yeah. And that's, you know, if I don't have other stuff to take care of. So, yeah, it's something that, you know, you want to play because you want to play through these epic games. But, you know, on the other hand, there's so much other cool stuff coming out constantly that you just want to jump on it. Mm. So, um, you know... You trade, I, I try to play one long game and have that continuously going, like Etrian Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And then uh, at the same time, I'm switching out with you know bouts of The Last of Us or bouts of Dark Souls while I'm, while, while I'm playing this long game. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, not too different than some of my... Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel I, I find myself getting 
so many games I want to play, and I have a bad habit of myself of getting close to the end and oh, getting boy. something else and starting oh, a new boy. one. Yeah. All these unfinished RPGs all over oh, my yeah. shelf, and I've kind of started making a rule where I, I won't start <laughs> a new game until this one's over. And it's hard to stick to. It's hard. It is. It is. <laughs> I I have this thing where I have to finish games. It's very hard for me to leave a game unfinished, but sometimes I guess I draw the line where I feel like. If I feel like I'm pouring time into this and it's not as much fun as I feel like I could be having with some other game I haven't opened yet or played yet, if I've crossed a certain threshold of how many hours or I've gotten through the story a certain amount, I might I might decide, okay, I've got I've seen everything there really is to see. Yeah. And I put it down. Maybe I'll Google or YouTube the ending to the game and then move on. But for the most part I just I gotta finish these games. I just I I, I don't know, it's a completionist or an O C D thing. Yeah, my, mine is I, I like to complete everything, so I start. Mm-hmm. I got to do all the side quests. Well, then I get oh, burned wow, out doing okay. all the side quests, and then I kind of, okay. the 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 story and the whole you know momentum kind of dies, and that's, yeah, I that's see. the issue I get into. Uh, so we, we kind of discussed this briefly before we started recording the show, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, there's been a resurgence of retro, and uh, yeah, a lot of it being with indie games like yeah. what you guys make. So, uh, what what are your thoughts on all that and, that, and how that's been going? Well, for one, I'm not surprised that it happened because of two reasons. Number one, a lot of the genres that kind of sprouted in the 80s, those are genres that kind of got left in the dust by the big, uh, you know, the main console, the big industry at large, especially when 3D took off. So while the bigger studios started pursuing 3D games and games with bigger production values and stuff, a lot of these games just got left in the dust. Well, that doesn't mean that those games and those gameplay styles are no good mm-hmm. anymore. It just means that uh, you know publishers and bigger studios are trying other stuff. Well, <clears throat> what that leaves open is that there's an un- there's now an untapped market for smaller studios to jump in and address the market for those games. And sure, there's smaller markets, but that's perfect for a small studio. Yeah. So between that and the fact that it's easy to match a retro style to sort of an old-school gameplay. It just makes sense. Right. Well, a lot of these old-school style presentations are a lot easier for a small team to do. Yeah. It's a lot easier to make a game that looks like an 8- or 16-bit game than it is to make something that looks like Gears of War. I mean, especially for a two-man team. So I'm, I'm not surprised that the indie developers have sort of come in to fill that, that hole in the market that the consoles have left behind in the past 20 years. So do you think that is the future of indie games? Do you, uh, we have, you know, we kind of started to grow this middleman or this mid-sized indie companies, kind of like WayForward and a few yeah. others. So you've kind of gotten indie and then they've kind of ballooned out to somewhere in between. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think is the future of uh, indie developers like yourselves and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, this kind of commentary on some of these indies that have gone kind of big? Okay. Well, what's interesting is if you look before 2008, or maybe even further back, 2002, 2003, 2004, yeah. what you saw a lot was you had giant, you had these giant publishers, and then they were doing big AAA productions, and then you had the, the teams that worked for them and the first parties. Then you had a lot of these mid, mid-tier developers making A or AA games, yeah. and a lot of those studios could subsist, like... Um, the developers that made Time Splitters were kind of in that realm, mm-hmm. and sometimes they had publisher, you know, they had to go sign deals with publishers one at a time for each of their games. And then you had the small teams that released on retail, like uh, 
um, Pseudify One's team that yeah. did like a, a Killer Seven, mm -hmm. and that's not a kind. That's the kind of weird, quirky game you might expect from a, a studio that's bigger than a one or two man team, but smaller than these mid tier double A size companies. Well, in the past six years, since the quote unquote HD generation of consoles and with the economy and everything, a lot of the small to mid-sized developers just couldn't make it. They couldn't compete with the giant AAA productions with the $100 million budgets, yeah. or 40 or $50 million. And they all kind of were either bought up or had to shutter their doors. Um, and that left... Uh, I mean, that, that's bad for the industry because there's less variety, there's less studios and less talent. Fortunately, uh, digital distribution started to pick up in 2008, or it started to pick up before that, um, but it really took off around that time with indie games. And since then, digital distribution on all the different platforms, mobile, as well as console, as well as PC, have been taking off. And that's kind of reopened the door, not just for small teams, but also for growing and mid-sized teams are kind of making a comeback. Mm -hmm. And WayForward is kind of an example of a mid-sized team making a comeback. Okay. Um, so I, I think that's a, good, a really good thing. And going forward... I think you're going to see two things. You're going to see a lot of small studios like us that are releasing console and Steam games and so forth. That's going to continue. You're also going to see teams that started small that got big just because of success. Yeah. And I don't know of any really truly good examples. I guess um, Mojang got big after Minecraft blew up. Now they're doing a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And Jonathan Blow started out with you know his 2D braid, and now he's growing, growing into this giant, huge thing with The Witness. Yeah. But I also, I also, this is an interest. This is what I think is also going to happen. I think you're going to see sprouting up a lot more indie publishers. Okay. Because a big, a big barrier for a lot of indie studios is marketing, getting out there, and also getting onto certain platforms by not having a publisher. So instead of just having the big ones like EA and Ubisoft, I think there's going to be more publishers like um, Adult Swim Games mm -hmm. and Devolver Digital, who are basically there to cater to in talented indie studios that could really benefit from a publisher relationship. And I think down the line we're going to see a lot more of those sprout up because there's some studios that are super talented that could just really use a publisher. Yeah. So we'll see. Kind of brought up a few thoughts for me. Well, how difficult was it for you guys to get your games on Steam originally? So for us... We applied to get Cthulhu Saves the World and Breath of Death on Steam before Steam Greenlight existed. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't easy then, just like it isn't easy now. I mean, Greenlight is a bit of a... I've heard it called a rat race, where you've got to have... Or a popularity contest. Um, I can see why they say that. But before it existed, Steam was basically you know, a team that takes applications, and they get millions of them every single day. Right. So how do they go through all of those, and how do they decide? Well, we were fortunate in that um, we sent an application, and we didn't hear back, and then we sent a reminder email, and we, we, really, we really focused in on how much coverage we'd gotten on Xbox Live Indie Games, and Winter Uprising, and how many articles and stuff covered us. Mm. And I don't know if that helped. I think it did. And I think making it kind of a business proposal about how many copies we'd sold what the market for this type of game is, how it's an untapped market on Steam, mm -hmm. at least it was at the time, I think that helped convince them that it was a good bet. And so once once they saw that, they, they said, hey, yeah, we are, uh, we've are we heard of your game and we think it would be a good fit. And 
Then we signed the deal, and the rest is history. <laughs> so now that you've gotten those games on Steam, is it easier for you to get your subsequent games on Steam, or do you have to go through that process each time? So for Cosmic Star Heroine, for example, uh, they they accepted the pitch for that game from us directly. So okay. we're, able, we're able to launch that game on Steam without using Greenlight, right. for which we are very thankful. And I... You know, Valve can do run their company however they like, yeah. and I think it was wise of them to allow developers that they have a working relationship with, mm-hmm. especially if they have successful games on their platform already, to continue on sure. than having to basically reboot the whole process. So I'm, I'm glad for that. That's definitely ideal for, for you guys. Uh, obviously mm-hmm. going, I hear some tough stories of some of these games that go through this green light process, and yeah. you never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. I mean... Just part of it. I feel like you. Uh, or I've I've heard that a lot of developers feel as though they have to sort of secure an audience for their game before their game is even out yeah. or out on Steam. And it's almost like, well, <laughs> you get a whole bunch of people interested for a game that's not out yet, or a bunch of people interested for a game that's not on the platform they want to play it on yet. So I can certainly see that as a challenge. And uh, this also let me another point I wanted to make or a question to ask is that. This indie scene has kind of been blowing up. So now you have, you know, mm-hmm. there used to be a handful, maybe not so many. There's now indie developers everywhere saying, hey, yeah. this guy can do it. I can make my own game. Sure. So how do you kind of set yourself apart from all mm-hmm. of these other indie studios that's just flooding the market now? Yeah, there's definitely a lot more voices, it feels like now, and a lot more competition, which is fine. I mean, competition is good in the market. Our, our philosophy has always been to focus on having a as unique a concept as you can so that when you first hear about the game, it doesn't sound like something else or it sounds weird enough that you want to learn more. So Breath of Death 7, the beginning, is just a bizarre game title and there's no 1 through 6 and it's poking a little bit of fun at RPGs that are in their 7th or 8th and 9th and 13th yeah. and 3rd to 13th uh, iteration and the beginning is poking fun about how all these storylines never start or end at the same place. Uh, Cthulhu Saves the World has Cthulhu in it and he's saving the world and that's a bizarre concept. <laughs> Why is he saving the world? He's supposed to destroy it. I want to learn more. That whole thing. Yeah. So I think having a, a game concept that or just even from the title alone, makes people want to learn or hear more about it is key to standing out, or at least getting people to want to hear more about it. Okay. From there, it's just about trying to be original, put your own twist on things, and making gameplay and ideas that are fun and interesting and not just kind of um, following in the exact path of other stuff. Okay, and uh, I guess here's almost wrapping uh, this interview up, but... I know Cosmic Star Hero is still really in its early stages. Do you guys have any future plans beyond that, or you just kind of take it day by day? Oh, we always have ideas. We have like a thousand ideas for games we want to try and do after this. Mm -hmm. So what we end up landing on will be almost like a roulette wheel by the time we get there. Uh, We have so many ideas we want to do a Zelda-style game, and we want to do a a game that's difficult but rewarding kind of like the way Dark Souls is and we want to do we really want to do a zombie survival game even though that's you know people think that's cliche but we want to try our own little tweak on it and uh, we want to try doing a strategy game like uh, an SRPG mm-hmm. all of these things but what we f- actually feel like doing after Cosmic Star Heroine's done I don't know it could be any of the above or something totally different right uh, 
I guess what kind of platforms do you, have you guys been enjoying? Where obviously PC and Steam's been a, a great one for you, but I know you just announced uh, Cosmic Star Heroine's going to be on the Xbox One. Yeah. So uh, what are, what are kind of your options, and which of these uh, platforms do you, do you guys like to put your games on? Well, we like. I mean, we love consoles because our games are kind of console esque. Yeah. But our biggest portion of our revenue by a long shot thus far has come from Steam. Yeah. We're looking forward to launching on PS4 and Xbox One to see how those how the new gen is going to treat us. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be really good because we're going to be on PlayStation Network proper as opposed to when we were on Xbox, it was indie games, yeah. which is kind of like the lower tier. It's, hard, it's kind of buried. It's harder to get. Yeah, to. it's not Xbox Live Arcade, which is yeah. the premier flagship. So I don't know how Microsoft will handle the ID at Xbox games, mm-hmm. which is their independent thing, self-publishing thing, but hopefully it has a similar... Um, presence on their Xbox Live marketplaces as their normal games are. Okay. So we'll see. I'm just I'm excited to see how that goes, and I suspect our Steam revenue will still be a big slice of the pie. What about on the portable system? If it's going to PSN, I assume it's going to be on the Vita. Yeah, it'll be on Vita as well. And I mean, the Vita is a really cool piece of hardware. Yeah, I like the Vita a lot. Yeah, and a lot of RPG players have one, mm-hmm. even though it's not selling that well hardware. Why <laughs> everybody knows that. Everyone hears about that every week. But we have talked to developers who've had a lot of success on there already, yeah. like a surprising amount. And I think it's just a good fit if we're going to release the game on PlayStation 4, which we really want to. We're already signed on with Sony, and we're very confident that the PlayStation Vita will be able to power our little 16-bit RPG. So we don't see any good reason not to. I think it sounds fun to have it on a portable system. Okay, what about nothing with Nintendo, huh? Are they, I know they're a harder nut to crack sometimes. Well, right now Nintendo is actually being very open and proactive about signing wow. indie developers and offering free dev kits or loaner dev kits, one of the two. And I've seen them promote a lot of indie games, both at PAX and also in their Nintendo Directs. I mean, they're doing a great job. Obviously, the barrier for them is to get more consoles out there, the Wii U at least, which supports Unity and to figure out um, how to get more devs to support the 3DS, which, I mean, I would love to support that, but far as we know, Unity doesn't work on 3DS, and okay. it's one of the few major platforms that doesn't. Wow, okay. So if we did support 3DS, which, you know, right now there's no plans, but we'd have to figure out a way to get our Unity game working on that, which, as far as we know, there's no practical way to do that yet. Hmm. It would be well, cool, though. Yeah, I'm, I, you get to play around with using the dual screen and see how that can enhance your game as well. Yeah. Um, I guess that's it for me for the, the for the sound. Do you have any uh, last uh, comments or anything like that to follow up with? No, oh, um, not really. You can follow us on our website, zboy.com, or you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, it's at zboydgames. My personal Twitter, which I blab about our stuff all the time, is at Bill underscore AT underscore Z-Boyd. So it's at Bill at Z-Boyd. And uh, you can also check out um, our Kickstarter for more information on Cosmic Star here on all on a nice, clean uh, pitch page. So <laughs> if you want to see what that's about, check it out there. Uh, also, I'll put links in our post as well right. for, for all the listeners who, uh, if they want to, they can they can check that out to, to get further information. But, cool. Uh, thanks, Bill. Thanks for doing the interview with us, and uh, hopefully our uh, listeners will uh, uh, have an extra appreciation for you guys' work. Yeah, sounds good.